0: Exodus chapter 33, verse 7. I have to say well done to my brother-in-law and sister-in-law who had a baby just a couple of weeks before Michelle and I did. They named their little boy Kelvin Boyd Linehan. So my youngest daughter... Charlotte, as I'm holding her up on the platform here, uh, she was saying, Kelvin, Kelvin, here in a Christian Reformed church, so we praise the Lord for that. (laughs) Start them young, that's what we do here. Exodus 33, verse 7. We'll read this and then a New Testament reading, Colossians chapter 3. This is God's holy word. He gives it to his people for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. After I have finished reading both passages, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. You may respond with thanks be to God. Exodus 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Amen. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to us. In Colossians chapter 3, page 1834, if you're using the pew Bible in front of you, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is the word of the Lord. Speed be to God. Let us pray and ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us. This can only happen through your power and your spirit speaking through your word. Thou must save and thou alone. We stand as a needy people, all of us poor beggars in need of your mercy and grace, Be pleased to shower upon us eternal blessings from your heavenly kingdom. We thank you so much for the gift of the church, for the gift of your word, for the gift of this day to worship you. We thank you for the reminder of the gospel and the sacrament of baptism. We pray that it would encourage all of us. We pray for the work of this church and our faith that you would continue to sanctify us in the truth. We pray for our missionaries and the causes that we support We pray for the leadership of this church, the elders and the deacons. May they stand upon the truth of your word with courage and conviction. Father, we ask for those who need you in a special way, for those who are sick or shut in, for those who cannot be with us. Father, we pray for those who continue to receive ongoing treatment. Uh, We are grieved and our hearts are heavy as we have learned that our sister Sandy Vandermeer will be moving to hospice care. We pray that you would be with her And the family in this difficult time. Father, we have prayed for many, many months for our sister, and it seems now that uh, you have been pleased to not give her the earthly healing that we have asked for. But we ask, even in the midst of this, that we would remember that you have given eternal healing to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that we are to walk through this world, all of our days, however many we have, with a heavenly mindedness. That our life is hidden in Christ. Comfort us with all of these things. We know we live in a fallen, broken world that is often sad, that is often very difficult. In the midst of all of these things, Father, equip us for what lies ahead. And assure us of your love and grace the eternal inheritance that awaits us. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Not sure if any of you have had a similar experience as, as I have, but in my life, one of the most intimidating figures growing up in school was always the assistant principal, the vice principal. Not sure what it was, but they all seemed to have a similar appearance. A large man, most of them had fully shaved heads, and they had this presence about them, a a weightiness, a gravitas, a seriousness. They were disciplinarians. You didn't want to go, ever be called to their office. You didn't even want them to know who you were. Uh, The kind of confident kid who would maybe pick on others all of a sudden would shrivel up when the assistant principal came around. There was a heaviness that he carried with him. The term glory in scripture means just that, it's heavy, it's weighty. One of the sad things about the reality of the modern church is that we have lost a sense of the weightiness of God, the glory of God. Similarly, in society, we've lost a sense of the weightiness of life, the kind of gravitas that that gives life meaning, that approaches it with purpose and meaning to our daily lives and that which we attach to the things that we do. You know, it's interesting, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who prophesied the death of God, by which he meant at some point society is going to cease believing that there is a God and begin living by different principles, he said, once God dies, once people stop believing that there is a God and start acting like they believe that, they will walk around as if they are weightless. Ironically, of course, he was saying more than he knew. People will walk around without any sense of the seriousness of life. There will be no gravitas to it. And so we now live in a world that's an age of plenty. And yet, what do we see? Despair continues to increase. Teen suicides, violent crime, imprisonments, broken families, all of these things proliferating through our society more and more, gaining momentum each and every day and each and every year. We don't know as a society, as a world, sometimes sadly as a church, we don't know that if you have nothing else yet know the glorious God, you will find that you have enough. If you have nothing else but you know the glorious God, you will have enough. This is what we learn in Exodus 33 from Moses. We learn that the glorious God is pleased to communicate his presence and his grace to his people. So our goal today is, is to look at all of these things and we are to see that the heart of Moses is the heart that we are to have. A desire to see the glory of God even if all is not well in that sense. All is not well because there is danger in wanting to approach an infinitely holy and glorious God while you are yet sinful. And yet we learn that this glorious God is gracious to keep us safe in his grace. We keep all of those things in mind. We work through this text. First, asking forgiveness. Second, asking for God. Third, asking too much. And finally, safe in Christ. First, asking Forgiveness. We see in the beginning of this passage, Exodus chapter 33, that something has changed in uh, the nation of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness. The tent of meeting is now outside of the camp. And this change has occurred quite simply because of Israel's sin and rebellion. You go back to chapter 32 of Exodus. And that is where we have the the very famous occurrence, Moses is up on the mountain, and as he's up on the mountain, the people of God, they build an idol, a golden calf. One thing that we're to keep in mind as you consider this episode is that God has redeemed Israel out of Egypt for a specific reason, so that they might serve him, so that they might Glorify him so that they might be his particular and peculiar people that show the glory of God to all of the nations of the earth so that they might serve him. And what is an idol? An idol is a radical departure from the command to serve the living God. God says, serve me, love me, worship me. An idol is a radical departure from that. It's saying that the exact recognition... And worship that God deserves, I'm going to give to someone else. I'm going to give to something else. God has said that his glory he will not share with another. So this is no minor sin. And this has caused this change uh, to where the tent of meeting has been brought outside of the camp. And this has caused the people to mourn and grieve. God and his glorious presence no longer are found particularly in the midst of the people. Something has changed. And so in chapter 32, we see uh, Moses spring into action. It's a really fascinating chapter to study and to read and to look at. He does basically three things. The first is that he calls upon God. When uh, the people of Israel build this golden calf, God says, I'm going to consume them in my wrath. For look at their rebellion. Look at the, how they have run away from me. And Moses calls upon God. He says, remember your promise. Remember what you have said that you are going to create Uh, from this people a, a nation that is more than the sands of the sea a glorious people do not consume them remember your promises we read in chapter 32 that God relents from his anger that doesn't mean that he changes his mind God knew exactly what he was going to do from the start but we see Moses and his intercession on behalf of the people He calls upon God. Secondly, he calls upon the people. He comes down from the mountain and he wants an accounting. Who is on the Lord's side? The sons of Levi come forward and Moses puts them to task. He says, take out your sword and kill those who stand against God. And they kill 3,000 of their own brothers in that day. He calls upon the people. Lastly, Moses, you might say, puts himself on the line. All is still not well. He says, I need to go and make atonement for this sin, this great sin that the people have done. So he goes up to God. It goes back up onto the mountain as the covenant mediator. And he says, make atonement for the, I will make atonement for this sin or you blot me out of the book, God. He puts himself on the line, Exodus 32. What a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sins. But if not, blot me out of the book you have written. He puts himself on the line as a covenant mediator, prefiguring our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who affected forgiveness for us. That's the background that you need to understand for knowing why this tent of meeting has been moved to outside the camp. God says, I cannot dwell amongst this people. They're a stiff-necked people. In other words, a prideful, arrogant, sinful people. They have no regard for my word. They have no regard for what I have commanded them. Uh, I can no longer dwell in their midst. And so the people mourn and grieve. Why? Because this is the God who has brought them out of Egypt. All those promises in the Psalms you could take, that God being our fortress, our strong tower, our refuge, our strength, our warrior, these are all the things that Israel has actually experienced without God, without Yahweh, they never would have been saved out of Egypt. So they're mourning and grieving. If this God is not in our midst, then how will we defend ourselves against the strong nations of the earth? God has a little bit of a different perspective. He says, if I need to dwell in your midst, I'm going to consume you because of your sinfulness, because I am a God of wrath. And this highlights the tension of God's redemption project all throughout Scripture. He's, he's bringing back the, the, the fellowship and even improving the fellowship and the communion that God's creatures are to have with him from the beginning, from the book of Genesis. That is what God is doing. He's restoring that and he's making it better. But until that is consummated, until our sin is completely wiped away and done away with, there's this tension that sinful people cannot approach holy God. The holiness of God, we think about that oftentimes as being separate from sin, as God being morally pure. It, it is that, but it's also God's otherness. It's his transcendence. It's his wholeness. Sinclair Ferguson says, God's holiness in God means his wholeness. It is his godness. It is his being God in all that it means for him to be God. To meet God in his holiness, therefore, is to be altogether overwhelmed by the discovery that he is God and not man. To be overwhelmed by the discovery that he is God and not man. Have we lost the sense of being overwhelmed that God is God? So this is the tension of a holy God coming together with sinful people. Moses goes out outside the camp to this tent of meeting. Sometimes people have to go and meet him there, but every time he goes there, everyone watches. Everyone stands outside of his tent and watches because this is a significant thing. And the pillar of cloud coming down upon the tent of meeting, they are knowing that this is a glorious God, even though they have lost a sense of that fellowship. So what Moses does is then... He's asked forgiveness. Now he asks for God. He asks for God. God has said, I will consume this people, thus I will send an angel in your presence. Now some may say, that sounds pretty good. The God of the universe making sure we're taken care of sends an angel. And maybe it's a little bit better that way because maybe we don't need to guard our ways as much as we do when God is actually in our midst. Not good enough for Moses. It's not good enough for Moses. He pleads with God in the middle of our passage. He pleads with God and says you must go with us. What is he saying? An angel is not good enough. If you send an angel that is not good enough. Only God in all of his fullness can give Israel what it needs. Only God in all of his fullness. You wonder how Moses has arrived at this point in his life. Earlier he did not really seem very concerned with the presence of God. He ran away from many things in his life. But what has he done? He has, uh, what has happened in his life? He has seen the mighty acts of God. He has led them and he has seen God act with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So when God delivers them through the Red Sea and saves them from Pharaoh's army, once again he writes this in his song, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. The Lord is my strength and my song. Not Not I have strength in myself. The Lord is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Moses is at the point where he says only God in all of his fullness is going to be enough for us. This is one of the take home points for us this morning. Is that we need to learn the heart of Moses here the way that Moses is acting in this moment, we all need to know that unless the Lord, unless Yahweh, the God of the scriptures, unless he is with us, all hope is lost. Only he can give you what he needs, what you need. We celebrated a baptism today to think of that wonderful blessing of a Christian home, but we're reminded, as it says in God's word, unless the Lord builds builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless God builds it, you are laboring in vain. Unless you have God, you will never have enough. Every aspect of your life, we are called to trust in the faithfulness, the sovereignty, the trustworthiness of God. God wants his people, he wants the worshipers of him to have the heart of Moses like here that says, unless the Lord is with us, it will not be enough. The heart of Psalm 16, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. And that psalm ends, it says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's to have a heart that says, there is no one like God. Who is like God? Our son, we named him Ty Michael. Michael, Mikael, who is like God? No one. No one. One of the most famous chapters in scripture that proclaims that no one is like God is Isaiah chapter 40. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or who has shown him his counsel? To whom will you compare me, God says, that I should be like him? Have you not known? Have you not heard? In other words, God is saying there in Isaiah chapter 40, Don't you already know this? That the Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the heavens. And the earth. The wonderful blessing for Moses is that as he asks for the presence of God, the abiding presence of God, the Lord gives it to him. "Uh, My presence will go with you, he says. Reminds you of the promises in Scripture that the Lord delights to communicate his goodness to people who take refuge in him. The Lord is good, he knows those who take refuge in him, he wants his people to trust in him, to trust in his trustworthiness and his value and his worth. Some people get confused right after God says, my presence will go with you. Then Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, we all kind of do this at certain times. Imagine there's a high school or a middle school play and the star of the play has a scheduling conflict. She goes to tell the director, the director is stunned. The director begins to plead with her. You, you, need to, you need to show up. You need to cancel your other engagements. If you don't come, the show will not go on. She pleads and pleads, and the star of the play says, Okay, I'll make other arrangements. I'll make sure that I'm there. And then just to drive the point home, the director will say, Good, because if you do not come, we literally will not be able to have the play. That's kind of what Moses does. If your presence does not go with us, uh, we, we are hopeless to kind of drive that point home. But then Moses asks for something else. He asks perhaps for too much. He asks perhaps for too much. He wants to see the glory of God. There's so much mystery around this part of scripture and it's one of those passages that has been talked about for centuries. It's It's enraptured the people of God and theologians and scholars for years. It seems that Moses is asking for a a covenantal stamping of what God has promised. Show me, by your action, that you actually will go with us. It's something like baptism, isn't it? It is the visible word that is attached to the word that is heard. Right? God gives us the sacraments in order to say to us, The gospel is true, and you can trust in its trustworthiness. As surely as you see the water, as surely as you know that it is upon the head of the one being baptized, that is how sure that you can be that your sins are forgiven in Christ. Moses wants something of that assurance. So when he asks God, show me your glory, he's saying, show me that you will be true to what you have said and what you have promised. It's a bit of an audacious thing to ask for, isn't it? Does Moses realize the kind of danger he's introducing himself to? The God who is a consuming fire. It's an audacious thing. He asks to see God's glory. Again, that word means heaviness, weightiness. The Hebrew word kavod, heavy, weighty. Glory is something that has weight. Think of a father who commands respect. He doesn't ask for it. The first one to ask for respect is usually the last one to get it, isn't it? A father who commands respect by his presence and his action and his virtue that he carries in his life. His children fall in line because he commands respect, because he has a seriousness about him. Moses says, I want to be close to the transcendence of God. I want to be close to the seriousness of God. And though it is audacious, it is the exact right thing for him to ask for. It is is an audacious request, but Moses touches upon the deepest meaning of human life, to exist for God's glory, to savor and delight in God's glory. That is the deepest meaning of human life. So though... Moses asks for too much. He asks rightly. He asks for the right thing. It highlights the tension between sinful, God, sinful man and a holy God. It highlights that tension, but it shows us our greatest purpose to see and savor the glory of God, to glorify and to enjoy him forever. So then we see God graciously provide for the safety of Moses. No one can see my glory and live. He places him in a safe place, a cleft in the rock. He says, I'll place my hand over as I pass by and then you will be able to see the back of my glorious presence, the awesome presence of God. He gives him what is appropriate for him to survive, to keep him safe. He says, I will make my goodness or my beauty pass before you. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, he's saying, Moses, you are not earning this. You are not deserving this in and of yourself. This is because of my gracious uh, desire to show you these things. We want to know so much about what Moses experienced here. For all that he experienced, for all that he learned, he probably realized that there was much more that he did not know. The mystery Uh, increased exponentially for Moses as he sees the awesome presence of God go by. But we learn that God is pleased to communicate his glorious presence to his people in a way that accommodates to their sinfulness. He keeps them safe, even as they desire to see God's glory. So then as we bring this to a close in the next few minutes this morning... We are able to make some connections to our own situation, and that is that we are safe in Christ. We are safe in Christ. What would it look like for the people of God to live from the enclosure, from the cleft of the rock, from that safe place that God provides for us in his grace? Three things. The first is this, run to Christ in the gospel. Run to Christ in the gospel. We must know that we need God's presence in our lives. He's not an optional part. We have no good apart from him. Colossians chapter 3 says, our life is hidden with Christ in God. Think of yourself like Moses does in this situation. If God is not with me, I am hopeless. We're made for fellowship, for communion with God. And how does God fulfill? You think of that prayer that Moses says in the middle of this passage. You need to go with us. You need to be with us, God. How does he fulfill that? He fulfills it very explicitly and very clearly in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, we read that God in Jesus Christ tabernacled among us invoking that exodus language of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Jesus Christ tabernacled among men. That is how God makes his dwelling place with man in the Son, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. Moses is commanded to stand upon a rock, so we are called in the gospel to stand upon Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, cleft for us. The word cleft is one of those Beautiful English words. You always feel bad for people who have to learn English later in life. All these verbal tricks that our language can play. Cleft can be a noun, it can be an adjective, it can be a past participle, the past tense of cleave. So it can be a, a, a space in a rock, it can be that, that, that cleft, that hiding place. It also is the past tense of the verb to split. And that is how Jesus Christ is our safe place. He is the cleft for us because he was cleft for us, because he was split for us, broken upon the cross. He becomes the perfect hiding place for us. Why and how? Well, this is really the key point. Remember when God says to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God says, it's only by my grace that I'm going to show you my glory. It's only by my grace. And it's true insofar as God saves us as sinners, he saves us by his grace. But here's the key point, that Christ is a safe place for us. He is a hiding place for us because he does not stand before the Father on the basis of grace. He does not stand before the Father on the basis of mercy. He stands before the Father on the basis of his work, in full confidence, he can stand before his Father and present that word. And so we are said that when we trust in this Christ of the gospel, that God hides us in the rock of ages, the one who is cleft for us. We are hidden in his righteousness, and so God can look upon us in the Son. That is why we are to run to Christ in the gospel. To live from the enclosure is first to believe in that glorious word of forgiveness that God gives to us in Jesus Christ. The second is this, is to long to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Moses says, show me your glory. And you you read the scriptures and what you see is that we have been made to delight and to long to see the glory of God just as Moses did. And yet we sing, don't we? Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible hid from our eyes. How do we reconcile these? Is God invisible? Is he visible? You read the scriptures and what you see is that God has made himself visible to us in Jesus Christ and that the glorious hope for God's people is that one day we will behold the glorious resurrected Christ who is the glory of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John says, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus says to Thomas, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The great hope to see God in all in his glory is to see him in Jesus Christ. The last thing is that we are conformed to the image of Christ by the Spirit. Our prayer, our heart, becomes as Christ followers. Our prayer becomes not just, God, show me your glory, but rather, let your glory be known and seen in me. Let your glory be known and seen in me. And I believe that as you go through the Scriptures and as you see The kind of heavenly mindedness that God's word calls us to set your hearts or set your minds on things above. As you live out that kind of heavenly mindedness, that that makes you of more use to both God and to neighbor while you remain here below. That that actually makes you a more positive force for good in this world. People say that if you're so consumed with heavenly mindedness that uh, all you have is a private, self serving piety and devotion. Not true at all. Uh, the most heavenly minded Christians throughout the, the history of the church are those who have done the most earthly good, for they are the ones who have been the most willing to make sacrifices that no one else can make because they know what God has given to them in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis famously said, If you aim for heaven, you'll get earth thrown in with it. If you aim for earth, you will get neither. If you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in with it. In other words, live like you're going to be with your God forever in the new creation, and you'll get earth thrown in with it. You'll be a more positive force for good on the earth because you have a heavenly mindedness. If you live aiming for earth only, you will get neither. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 We see that by the Spirit, God is conforming us to the image of Christ and transforming us from one degree of glory to another. He says, The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Thus, as you long to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, you trust that by his spirit, he is transforming you from one degree of glory to another. So our prayer becomes not just, Lord, show me your glory, but let your glory be seen in me. Paul seamlessly moves in Colossians 3, have a heavenly mindedness, and then he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Put them to death as you live with a heavenly mindedness that makes you of greater earthly good, to have a piety and devotion that longs to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that lives each and every day running to Christ the Savior and the gospel of God. That is how you live from the enclosure. We see God's glory in the exact way that he has revealed it. I will show you my glory in the way that I decide, for I am the sovereign God, and I have shown you my glory in my Son, Jesus Christ. Thus, rest in him, abide in him, live in him, long to see him, and live like him by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise and adoration. You are a great God, a marvelous God, worthy of our worship and our praise. May you be pleased to call us to yourself. May you be pleased to conform us by your spirit to the image of Christ. And Father, may we rest in Christ alone. pray in his name. Amen.